me this morning, if you would, to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. This is where we're going to at least start. Verses. Come to my mind this morning, we kind of had a breakfast with dear brother yesterday morning and kind of got to talking about a few things and this is kind of one of the subjects that come up and it's been a while since we've talked about it and preached about it kind of was lingering on my mind this morning and <clears throat> so I turned over and John was looking at a couple of passages here and was thinking back I think I've told this story on a few occasions, maybe at least uh, to individuals personally. I don't know if I've ever done it from the pulpit or not, but uh, um, whenever I come into the doctrines of grace, and the Lord began to show me the truth that's found in Scripture of God's sovereign grace, His uh, predestination and election and um, particular redemption um, it all began with a men's Bible study at the Armenian church that I used to go to that we grew up in and, um, we was having a men's Bible study one morning we used to have a men's Bible study on Friday mornings before we went to work and um, we happened to be having a men's Bible study that morning and uh the young man that was bringing the, we called it a devotion that morning, but uh, he was bringing that devotion that morning. I don't even remember exactly what he was preaching about, talking about, or anything, but there was something that came up in something that he said, and whenever he said it, it just red flags went up in my mind. Uh, I, nothing that I'd actually actively studied out. But whenever he said it, it just didn't sit well with me. It didn't seem right. Uh, I even asked him afterwards uh, for clarification of what he actually meant. And um, sure enough, he meant exactly what I thought he said. And uh, at that point, that got me to begin to um, dive into the scripture and start looking and the thing that he said, and it, just, and it was just in passing whatever it was he was talking about, but he mentioned that there was a possibility that Jesus could have sinned. That Jesus could have uh, sinned, but he didn't. He obeyed the will of the Father, so he was obedient, and he just held out from sinning. He, you know, he chose not to sin, and therefore um, uh, he... Uh, was holy and was without spot or blemish to be our sacrifice, but yet there was still the possibility that Jesus could sin. And whenever he said that, it just, I, man, I, that don't sound right. Uh, and so I, uh, you know, I asked him, I said, well, why do you think that he could have sinned? Surely you don't think he could have sinned. And he said, well, if Jesus could not have sinned, then his temptation that he experienced uh, didn't mean anything. And uh, 
Therefore, uh, how could he be such a great high priest that can sympathize uh, to all the things that we go through if he could not have the ability to sin? And man, I just, whenever he said that, I just was, man, I just, that don't sound right at all. So I went to the scriptures and I began to look up the scriptures and I began to look up different things about that men have written about this topic. And the first thing I, I went to was the scriptures and began to look and I seen all the verses and many of them I've put down to look at today. But began to read some of the verses that was talking about Christ being without sin, being without spot or blemish and all these things. But, um, you know, I, I thought it went a little bit deeper than than just saying that he did not sin. What was it that, you know, we know that he did not sin, but could he have sinned? Could Jesus have sinned? That was the question that was kind of plaguing my mind and everything that didn't sit right. That it did, I, I thought that that was false. Jesus could not have sinned. And so, you know, that's kind of why I went on this. Well, I began to gather some writings of the men on the subject of it and everything and uh, found out that the big word that uh, everybody used in regards to this doctrine or this study is called the doctrine of impeccability. Y'all ever heard that before, impeccability? Y'all know what the word impeccable means? Uh, it means perfect, right? It means without flaw, without blemish or anything. If something is impeccable, then that means that it has flaw, that it can is subject to uh, uh, miss, m- messing up. You know, you can mess up and, 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 and everything. But someone who is impeccable uh, is without flaw, without any ability to make a mistake. And so um, I began to look at that and I gathered to myself, you know, several different writers of all different persuasions, actually, and was kind of reading them to see what they had to say about that. But the thing that kept driving me back was to the scriptures, to the scriptures. But through that study, I found a, a writer that I'd never heard of before. His name was W.E. Best. And it just so happened, whenever I found that that out, I went into my grandpa's study where he had all his books there at the church and began to look through all the his books. That was the first place I went to look for to study on this thing, is what he had. And... Um, he had, you know, a couple of uh, uh, books in there. One of them was by W.E. Best. And so I thought, well, hey, I'm going to check this thing out. So I checked it out. And then he had some books in there by uh, A.W. Pink. And uh, then he had some books by Spurgeon and some some other men. Now, uh, as I began to look at these things and, and pull them off, especially A.W. Pink, uh, I began to look at the, the the subject of the character of God, you know, God's attributes. And, of course, Pink had a book, The Attributes of God. And so I began to look at that, and then, in turn, whenever I looked at the attributes of God, well, one of those in there was the sovereignty of God. And, of course, there's a single work by Pink called The Sovereignty of God. And so I read that, and, and whenever I started reading that about God's sovereignty... The Holy Spirit just really began to teach me and began to convict me that the things I had been holding to and believing were incorrect and was taking me to the scriptures and was confirming the things that I was reading that Pink was saying about God's sovereignty. I was like, man, if that is true about what God is like, then, man, I've had things wrong. 
And so I went back to the scriptures and just started reading the scriptures, reading the scriptures, reading the scriptures. Now, at the end of my study about the impeccability of Christ, I surely came to conclude that what I initially thought, what I will say was the Spirit's teaching, was the Spirit's convicting, the Spirit's constraining my mind from error in that particular thing, uh, is the fact that Jesus cannot sin. And hopefully uh, I can bring that out today if the Lord gives me ability. But through all that, the Lord brought me into hearing and reading about the sovereignty of God. My uncle had been sharing stuff with, with me over time and everything, but I never did, you know, uh, me and him just kind of argued back and forth most of the time. But um, uh, then all of a sudden the things that he began to say began to make sense as the Spirit was giving me understanding and everything, and that put me on the study into the doctrines of grace. And as I began to keep studying, I began to see that I was in error in the gospel. And uh, thankfully that the Lord taught me that and brought me out of that uh, that mindset of uh, a free will, free decision, a gospel that Jesus has died for everybody and that Jesus loves everybody and that Jesus... Uh, uh, has done everything for your salvation, but it doesn't happen until you accept him or choose him or decide to be whatever um, uh, follower of his or invite him into your heart or make him Lord of your life, whatever those phrases that we used to use were. I found that that was not the gospel, that that was a false gospel. And so the Lord began to teach me that the scripture overwhelmingly teaches that Jesus came and that he had a people that he chose from the foundation of the world and that, that, that people that was given to him by God, uh, he came and died for to redeem them from sin and that was through the work on the, his life, his death, his resurrection. All of that is what secured their righteousness and it was given to them by substitution and imputation and all of their curse that they had, uh, that the con- condemnation of the law had, was laid upon him, and he was their substitute. He and it was imputed unto him all of our sin, and therefore uh, we are saved objectively, not subjectively. We are saved objectively, meaning that what Christ actually did actually saved the people for whom he died. It wasn't a, uh, an opportunity to be saved, an offer to be saved, an invitation to be saved, a, a, a maybe salvation. It was a secured salvation. He actually saved every person that he died for in that work. And those people immediately upon uh, uh, upon that righteousness, and I say immediately, of course this goes back before the foundation of the world and the predestination of God and the uh, holy calling before the foundation of the world in Christ Jesus, that, that was given to us. And we were saved before we were ever created. We were saved before we were ever born. We were saved because of the work of Jesus Christ. And so I found that that gospel was completely wrong that I've been preaching. And uh, I pray that the Lord continues to keep me faithful as He grows me in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I continue to learn more and more of this wonderful sovereign grace. Now, with that being said, going back to the topic uh, of Christ's impeccability, whenever I begin to study this, I begin to see overwhelmingly in Scripture that there is absolutely no way that Jesus could have died. Number one, 
Jesus couldn't have sinned. And the biggest main reason, we're going to look at some verses where it actually states this and show that there is a biblical record of this. But the main reason that we see why Jesus could not sin is because of what's found in John 14. Now turn with me, if you would, to John 14 and verse 30. And let's look at this. I want to start the reading, though, at verse 22. It says, Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, so this is not Judas that betrayed Jesus, this is another Judas. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Now, that was the understanding of this disciple of Christ, is that Christ would manifest himself unto his people, but not unto the world all, all, all in general. Okay? So, to say that that's not the teaching of Jesus uh, is, is false. If anybody says that Jesus wants everybody in the world to know the gospel, which that's what 98% of the churches that are out there preach, uh, is incorrect. Jesus himself said that this is hidden from the wise and the prudent, but it revealed unto babes. Jesus said that this uh, gospel is hid uh, to those who are perishing. Uh, the gospel is, is hid to those who are the reprobate. Uh, those who are of the natural mind, who have not been quickened of God and given a uh, spiritual life, they cannot understand or know or, or, or uh, uh, do the things of the Spirit of God. It's an inability. So Judas wasn't wrong in what he was saying here, that Jesus was going to manifest himself to his people and only his people. But look what he says in verse 23. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. And I believe that's what happened with me. The Lord sent the Holy Spirit to bring all things uh, uh, to remembrance that the Scripture had said. Had I read those things before? Yes, I'd read those things. I knew the Bible said that Jesus couldn't sin and never sinned and, and, and that He was holy and righteous and blameless and all these things. But yet, did I ever study it to the point of could He have ever sinned? No, I'd never done that. But for some reason, that didn't seem right. Why? Because the Holy Spirit had taught me that that's not correct. He said, verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Ye have heard how I have said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye love me, ye would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. Hereafter, and here's the verse, Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and have nothing in me. 
But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. <coughs> let's bow and pray. Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for your word that you have given us, that has been preserved through all the ages, that we can turn and see the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we gather here today, we ask, Father, that your um, spirit would be with us, the Spirit of Christ, to teach us and to guide us into truth. Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding, the mind being uh, given to know, the heart being given to receive. Uh, Father, we thank you for these things that you have written about your Son, and we rejoice in them. We rejoice in the gospel today, and we are just uh, truly blessed to be able to gather as we do in a, in a place where we can openly preach and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ and brethren that are here. Lord, I thank you that you have brought them together once again uh, for this day to worship. And Lord, we just pray that if there are others like us that are in this town, Lord, that you would bring them our way and that you would join them with us uh, to be able to uh, partake in the gospel together. And Lord, that we might be able to edify one another uh, as your spirit aids us. Lord, we just ask today that you would help us in preaching and in worship. Lord, we need your Spirit to do these things. Without the Spirit, there can be no worship. Without your Word, without the truth, we could have no worship. And so we pray that we would worship you in Spirit and truth today. And we ask that Christ would be glorified and that he would be honored in the things that we say and the things that we preach. Lord, help me to preach today. Give me the words and the, uh, and the utterance, Lord, uh, that you would have me to uh, give to your people. These are your sheep. I know that I am not the shepherd, that you are the great shepherd of the sheep. And I know, Father, that you are uh, the one who will feed them. And so I pray that today that you, by your Spirit, will come and feed your sheep uh, and help me to keep from error. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Jesus said here, he said, hereafter, now if you remember, this is before Jesus was crucified. Uh, matter of fact, this was right before Jesus was about to go into his time of suffering and to be crucified. And so he's telling his disciples, listen, I'm about to go away and I'm going to send you the Comforter, who was none other than God himself coming back as uh, as the, the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so we see that Jesus is going to come back to them. He said he was going to come back. He says that, uh, 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 you've heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again to you. Well, he did come again to them. He came immediately back to them in the form of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it was the Spirit of Christ. Now we know that because um, in John chapter 14, uh, in verse 16, he says, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. See, Jesus was fixing to go away. The, the, the man, Jesus, was about to go away. Okay, go back into heaven. And he says, I'm going to send you another comforter, and this one is going to be with you always. 
He says, Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Okay? He says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Now, I've preached on this before, and you've heard me talk about this before, how a lot of people try to separate the Godhead out into three distinct, separate, equal, uh, individual persons. But yet we see here that Jesus here is affirming the fact that he himself is the one that's coming back, but he's not coming back as the man, Jesus Christ. He's coming back as God, the Holy Spirit. He's coming back to them as God, the Holy Spirit. God is one, okay? God is one God, and he is revealed as in three. There's three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. The Word was made flesh, came in the flesh, Jesus Christ. The Father, he, Jesus Christ, is the uh, uh, the everlasting Father, the wonderful Counselor, the mighty God. Jesus Christ is God manifested in flesh. And therefore, Jesus, whenever he goes back, okay, whenever that manhood goes back and God is back in heaven as God, and, and of course he was God here too, but... He goes back, he sends the Comforter. And the Comforter comes, that Comforter is the Spirit of Christ. We see that throughout the Scriptures as well. That's Christ's Spirit, which is God, because God is Spirit. The one God that we serve is one God, and He is Spirit, He is invisible. But yet He took on flesh as Christ, and He comes to us as the Holy Spirit, and that is how we are taught. That is how we are convicted of sin. That is how God uh, does the works of God in us is through the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus here is given a promise that he is going to come again and he is going to um, uh, uh, give them comfort. Now this is, again, right before he died. Now in saying all that, he says here, I will not talk with you for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. Now what's he talking about there? Well, the prince of this world we know the Bible talks about is Satan. Satan is the prince of this world. And of course we know that Christ coming into this hour uh, uh, of, uh, of suffering that, uh, that he felt all the temptation uh, of man. Uh, we know that he felt the temptation uh, uh, of men. The Bible tells us that he was tempted in all points like as we are. Uh, we're going to read that verse in just a little bit. But he was tempted just like we was. We know that in the beginning of his ministry, Satan came and tempted him. And for 40 days in the desert, he was tempted of Satan. And um, Satan, every time he tempted him, Jesus just spoke to him the word of God and talked to him and the devil couldn't get nothing to happen. Couldn't get him to sin. Couldn't get him to give up. Couldn't get him to turn around, do something else. He he wasn't able to get Jesus to buckle to sin. And so Jesus here is saying that the prince of this world is coming again, and he's coming again for attacks, for 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 temptation to sway him. And we know that in the garden, he, he struggled in the garden, remember? He suffered and sweat as great drops of blood. Not that he was ever going to deviate from what he was coming to do, but that the whole thought of what was about to happen 
had flooded this man's mind about the fact that here I am, the eternal God, and yet God is going to forsake me. Okay, God is going to forsake this this body, and He's going to forsake me and leave me to suffer on the cross and to take on all sin. Him who knew no sin. We're going to read that. But he who knew no sin. And so Christ was saying there is an hour fixing to come whenever the temptation is going to be the heaviest that it has ever been. But it says right here, and hath nothing in me. Satan is coming, but he hath nothing in me. What does that mean? He has nothing in me to entice. See, turn with me if you would over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 and verse 14. Now this is the account, the testimony of God about how sin comes into being. Okay? Now I would say, as we're reading this, that this isn't just for everybody since Adam. This actually included Adam. Adam was no different in this point. Whenever God created Adam, He created him, as the Bible said, natural, of the earth earthy. He created him not spiritual. Theologians out there, seminaries out there, churches out there, I and my old understanding used to preach it this way, that Adam was created spiritually alive and died spiritually. And that was what the fall was, that he died spiritually whenever he sinned. But the Bible clearly states that Adam was not made spiritual, he was made natural. It's Christ, the second Adam, who was made spiritual, who is spiritual. He is the man from heaven. Adam was of the earth earthy and he was made natural. He was made with a natural nature. And the Bible says that that natural nature cannot keep the things of God. It cannot obey the law of God. It cannot uh, understand the spiritual things of God. Therefore, Adam is just as much in this verse as it is all of us. But let's look how sin actually takes place. Look at verse 14. It says, But every man... Was Adam a man? Yes, he was. But what does it say? But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So how does temptation take place? What is temptation? Temptation is enticing the lusts that are within us, that is in our nature. Our nature has lusts that is in there. And those lusts are enticed by the things of this world. The Bible says that we are enticed by the uh, by the things of the world, by the things of, of Satan, by the own pride of our own life, the, the 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 pride of the flesh, the pride of the eyes, the pride of life, the the Satan and the world and all the system of the world. These things entice us because we have lust within us. And it says here. That when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. So where does sin come from? Sin comes from the nature of man who has lust within it. And those lusts, when enticed, and that enticing 
turns to a conceiving, meaning that you give forth to that lust. You give way to that lust. When you give way to that lust, you sin. That is our nature. So we are sinners not only by action, but we are sinners by who we actually are in that nature. See, we sin because we are sinners. See, the sin is derived from the nature. The sin comes forth from the makeup of the nature that is to lust. Our nature is to lust after what we don't have. To lust after what was said, don't do. To love, that's why the Bible says whenever the sin come, came in, we died. Why? The sin, before the sin came, I didn't know it was wrong to do this. But whenever the sin came, or whenever the law came, sin revived. Why? All of a sudden, I was told not to do that. Now all of a sudden, I'm lusting to do that. Why? Because I'm told not to do that. Just like whenever you kids were little, your mom would make cookies and say, okay, here's some cookies, but you can't have any right now. Leave them right there. You guys were salivating at the mouth wanting those cookies and every time you walked into the kitchen you was like, can I have a cookie? Can I have a cookie? Sometimes you may have even taken one when you shouldn't have. Why? Didn't even cross your mind until you found out, don't get these cookies. You didn't even know there's cookies in there. Didn't even have any reason to want the cookies until someone said, there's some cookies and don't have them right now. Right? So it says here that we are drawn away by our own lust and enticed. And when lust conceived, it bringeth forth sin. So sin is brought forth from a nature that has lust. Now, why could Jesus not sin? Why did Jesus say that the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me? There's nothing to entice me because I do not have any lusts. I don't have any lust in my heart. There is no sin in me. And if there is no sin in me, there is nothing to entice to get me to actually sin. See, if there is no nature to sin, there can be no sin. Now, I want to say this. This is in respect to, to the manhood of Christ. Now, Jesus couldn't have sinned because he was God. That's the main reason, is he could not sin because Jesus was not just man, but he was God. He was one man who is both divine and both man. But yet that man was not full of sin. He did not have the nature. Now the Bible says that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful man, but he didn't come with the nature of sinful man. The Bible said he was created like unto his brethren, but he is like unto his brethren, not just like his brethren. He wasn't made sinful. He wasn't made with a nature to sin. Jesus was created and formed and fashioned in that body, and that body and that man was holy and without blame. It was spotless. That person was from heaven. He was spiritual. He was without sin. Now, 
the reason Jesus didn't sin wasn't because he didn't he just held out to the end and didn't engage in sin. He could not have sinned because the nature of Christ Jesus was divine. It was holy. He was altogether God. He was the God man and he couldn't sin because he was God. Now some will say, well he was born of, of Mary. Therefore, he was born of Adam's race. No, he was not born of Adam's race. You show me one scripture that says that he was born of Adam's race. The Bible says in Corinthians 15 that he was the man from heaven. That whenever the Holy Spirit came and overshadowed Mary, that what was conceived in her was conceived of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't conceived of Mary and it wasn't conceived of Joseph. It wasn't conceived of any man but that man from heaven was conceived in her by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, Jesus Christ did not have his manhood from Mary or from Joseph or anybody else. Of course, we know it wasn't any other man because she was a virgin. But it didn't, he didn't get it from Mary because if he would have got his manhood from Mary, he would have been of the earth earthy just like Mary. He would have had the nature of Adam, which is full of sin. Therefore, whenever he said that in verse 30, he would have been lying because he would have had something in him that the prince of this world could have came to entice. But yet in this passage, Jesus said he could have, there's nothing in him. He hath nothing in me. He has nothing to, 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 to entice. And that's because he is the God from heaven. Now, <clears throat> We know that God is holy, right? I think all of us are pretty uh, aware of that and know that. And holiness is not just keeping from sinning. See, the, 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 the fellow that was leading the devotion that morning admitted, now Jesus, he kept from sinning. He didn't sin. I'm not saying he was a sinner. He didn't sin. He never sinned once. He was holy. He never sinned. Well, brethren, holiness is more than keeping from sinning. Holiness is actually the character of God. It's the substance of who God is. He is holy. Therefore, everything He does is holy. Now, in regards to Jesus' manhood, He could not have sinned because he was God, and he kept the law of God. Now, as it is divine, God is not under a law. As Christ, Jesus submitted himself under the law of God, and became a servant under the law. But as God, he is above the law. He does not have a law that anybody has given him. No man has ever given God a law, nor can they. Heard Brother Lackey say this uh, not too long ago. You know, show me the man that is going to stand as God's lawgiver in the court of justice and say, why have you done this? There ain't nobody that can. Nobody can be his counselor, the Bible says. God is not as divine, as not under any law. But as Christ, he submitted himself to the law of God came under the law of God and kept that law. He wasn't obligated to the law as divine. 
because the law was given for man. But as our substitute, as our man substitute, as our second Adam, he came and submitted himself to the law and kept that law a hundred percent. Not just keeping it outwardly, but keeping it inwardly. Something that we could never do, even though we could wash the outside, as Jesus alluded to with the Pharisees, you washed the outside and whitewashed it and made it look clean, but on the inside is dead men's bones. We can clean ourselves up outwardly and maybe look like we're keeping the law, but inwardly we don't. I may never commit adultery with a woman, but in my mind I can I can lust after a woman. And Jesus said, if you've lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery with a woman. So see, we cannot, because of our nature, keep from sinning. That's who we are. Our flesh is full of sin, and that's all it can do. Jesus was not of this world. He was a God from heaven. He was the man from heaven. His flesh was from heaven. He said in John chapter 6 that this his flesh had come down from heaven, therefore it is not tainted of this world, it is not of this earth, earthy. It is not natural, it is spiritual. Therefore Christ could not have sinned, even though he come under the law, and as God, he could have done anything he wanted because he is holy and righteous and just. But as the Son, he came and he submitted himself to that law, and he kept that law, and therefore, not only was he holy in the aspects that he was God, but he was holy in the aspects that he submitted himself to the law of God and kept the law of God in every point. Now, another reason that Jesus could not have sinned, and again, we're going to get into some verses showing all this, but I just wanted to give you the reasons why I come across what the Bible teaches overall and why Jesus could not sin. Another reason that Jesus could not sin is because all the Old Testament prophecies that was talked about, about Jesus coming and being without sin, were all grounded in the decrees of God before the foundation of the world. God predestinated everything from the foundation of the world and Christ was to come as a lamb slain without spot or blemish from the foundation of the world. All the prophecies of the Old Testament foretold of Jesus coming but being without sin. And therefore, if God in His predestination, in His decree, had decreed that Christ would be a, 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 a lamb without spot, then there was absolutely positively no way that Christ could have ever sinned otherwise God would have been a liar. His decrees would not have been uh, uh, valid. or uh, He did not have the power to uphold it. All the Old Testament prophecies were lies. So the very fact that God had prophesied, and prophecy, all prophecy is, is telling what God has already determined in the past. That's what prophecies are. Prophecies aren't foretelling the future as in looking down the corridor of time and seeing what's going to happen or all this stuff. What prophecy is is men telling what God has already ordained to do from the beginning of the world. He's already done. But another reason that we know that Christ could not have sinned is because the Bible clearly declares 
that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if he is such, he could not have sinned lest he would have become a sinner. If Jesus could have sinned, then he could have become a sinner. And there is no possibility that Jesus could have become a sinner because he does not change. God cannot change. Now, preacher, can you back that up in Scripture? Glad you asked. Thankfully, the Holy Spirit has given us, through these writers, ample testimony to this. But brother, just, I mean, just think about it. If Christ could have sinned, then he still could sin, right? I mean, he's ascended back to the Father, and he's still in, in his manhood. He could still sin. And what's to say if he could that he doesn't? And if he can, then everything that he has done on our behalf is useless. Right? Turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 5. The first thing I want us to do, I want us to go back and look at the Old Testament. I want us to look at a few passages that show us Christ could not have sinned because, as I just said, the Old Testament prophecies foretold that he would be without spot or blemish. And that was in the types and the foreshadows. In Exodus chapter 12 and verse 5, when God was instructing the sacrifice for the Passover, He says this, starting, I'm going to start reading verse 5, that's what we're going to look at, we'll start verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbors next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. So it has to be without blemish. Also notice, if you'll say here, is the male of the first year, uh, his firstborn son. Christ was the firstborn son of God, the only son of God, but the firstborn. Was the firstborn of Mary also, if you want to look at it physically. But, um, but we see here that he is to be without blame. This Passover lamb was a type of, of Christ. It was the gospel being taught in this very uh, 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 sacrifice uh, for them. Christ is our sacrificial lamb. He is our Passover lamb. Uh, look, if you would, at Leviticus 
chapter 22. Whenever God gave the law to Moses and the priesthood and how they were to carry out the, um, the sacrifices. Leviticus chapter 22, I'm going to start reading in verse 19. It says, Ye shall offer at your own will a male without blemish of the beeves, of the sheep, or of the goats. But whatsoever hath a blemish, thou shalt ye not offer, for it shall not be acceptable for you. So here again we see that God specifically required. And why did He do that? Because this type is a is a is a symbol is a showing of Christ, and so the type uh, and the substance has to be uh, compatible. It has to be commensurate with with the uh, with the substance. The type has to be commensurate with the sub, uh, substance. Okay, that's why in the Lord's Supper, that's why it's important that we have the unleavened bread and the alcoholic wine. Because there is no leaven in the bread, there's no leaven in the wine. Both of those were symbolic, and God gave them as symbols to point to Christ. If you take grape juice, it has leaven in it. It's full of leaven. And leaven represents sin in the Bible. You guys have seen, I've showed you the illustration. If you guys remember, it's been several years ago. I think you remember your little one. That. You remember I took a glass of wine and I took a glass of grape juice and I put it there at the church whenever we was in the other building. And we just let it sit there. And we let it sit there for several weeks. And what happened to that glass of wine? Nothing. It was as clear a month later as it was the day that we poured it out. But what about that glass of grape juice? Turned nasty, didn't it? All this mold and bacteria started growing on it. Why? Because there was leaven in there. The wine had been purified. The alcohol that was in there had purified that. That is why Christ instituted the Lord's Supper with the wine because it symbolized His blood. And we are given those testaments, those remembrances, to remember those things. And the type has to be commensurate with the substance. And here we see God said, take a male without blemish. Okay? And this is foreshadowing Christ. Now let's go to the New Testament and go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 18. It says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversations received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So here we see that Christ, again, is being uh, likened unto that spotless, blemish-free lamb of the Old Testament. Christ, who is our sacrifice, is as a lamb without blemish and without spot. So we see that he had no sin. Look, if you would, at Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 13. 
It says, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and of the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctified to purify the flesh, to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So here we see once again that Christ offered himself to God without spot. Now, without spot doesn't mean that he just held out and didn't sin. Without spot said meant that there was no blemishes in him. That there was nothing in him at all that could be blemished. If we keep from sinning, the best that we could ever say is that we have not sinned. But that still doesn't remove who we are inwardly in our nature and what's on the inside. See, the reason Jesus didn't sin inwardly even though he kept from sinning outwardly, he didn't sin inwardly. The reason he didn't sin inwardly is because there was no sin in him inwardly. There is sin in us inwardly. So therefore, Jesus could not have sinned because there was no sin in him. Therefore, no blemishes could ever be found because blemishes come from the inside out. Jesus said it's not what goes into the man that corrupts the man, but it's what is inside of the man that corrupts the man. <clears throat> what is what makes us corrupt on the outside is what is on the inside. Therefore, if Jesus could have sinned, that meant that there was sin in him, there was corruption in him, that that corruption could have gotten out. Jesus could not have sinned because there was no blemish in him, there was no corruption in him, he was without spot or blemish. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 2, it says, And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Now, the only way that that offering could have been offered to God as a sweet-smelling savor is if that offering was offered to God in the way that God commanded the offering to be given to him, and that was without what? Blemish. Right? So here again, the only way that Christ can be a sweet-smelling savory, savor unto God in His offering uh, for our sins is for Christ to be not only without, but within, without blemish, without spot. So we see the type. We see, we see the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, symbol, the, the, the work of the Passover lamb, the, the sacrifice, showing that Christ was without spot. But let's look also in the scripture because, um, there was many times that people was directly told that Christ was without sin. Look if you would with me to Luke. Luke chapter 1. 
verse 34. Let's back up to 31 here. So we can kind of get the idea of what's going on. Remember, this is where the angel come, uh, told Mary about Jesus, her being with child. It says, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and, and, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be seen? I know not a man. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So you see here, it's that holy thing which shall be born of thee. So it was speaking of Jesus being holy before he was ever born or had ever done anything good or bad, not keep just keeping himself restrained from sinning. See, that's so ridiculous that anybody would think that Jesus was holy because he just kept from sinning, even though he could have. He's not holy because he kept from sinning. He kept from sinning because he is holy. And here we see the angel specifically tells Mary, this child that's going to be born of you is a holy thing. Not only holy in the fact that he is consecrated of God, he is the anointed of God, the appointed of God, the one who has been separated of God for this ministry, but he is holy in the fact that he is the divine God in flesh that is coming down out of heaven and being placed in your womb, and you're going to give forth, give birth to the Son of God. He's a holy thing. Look, if you would, at um, Matthew chapter 1. Verse 18. So now the birth of Jesus Christ was on the wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophets, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So here we see that the angel is specifically telling Joseph, this child that is going to be born of your wife is not of this world. He's from heaven. He is a holy thing. 
we'll, of course we'll see that in a minute. But he said, this child is God with us. It is Emmanuel. This is God himself coming down in flesh. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So see, this is God with us. It wasn't just Jesus coming as man, but it was God in flesh. And God cannot sin. Look back, if you would, again in Hebrews Chapter 4. Look, if you would, at verse 15. Hebrews chapter 4 and uh, verse 15. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. See, Jesus said that the prince of this world has nothing in me. Why? Because I am without sin. Sin is a principle in us. It's not just an action on the outside. Sin is a principle in us. And that sin principle that is in us is what causes us to sin. And Jesus could not sin outwardly because the sin principle was not in him. He was tempted like as we are, yes, in every point. And I take that for what it means. He was tempted in every point. But yet without sin. He was tempted without sin. There was no sin in him. There was nothing to entice him. There was no lust Therefore, while he was tempted in all points like as we are, and then some are going to say, just like the, 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 the man did that morning whenever I questioned him about this, well, then Christ's temptation has no meaning if he could not have sinned. If he could not have sinned, then the temptation didn't mean anything. It, it's, it's worthless. It's not worthless, brethren. It's not worthless. The temptation of Christ Jesus is not a meaningless thing. Matter of fact, the temptation of Jesus Christ is a glorious thing. What happens is, is man wants to pull God down to his level and say, well then God isn't like me. How can God be sympathetic to my temptations if he didn't have something in there to be enticed? The point of Jesus' temptation wasn't to be just like you. The point of Jesus' temptation was to show and to prove the validity of who He was. The validity that He was God in the flesh. The validity of He was a, a spotless Lamb. The validity that He did come as the Savior of the world. And He did everything that He said He was He truly was. And the fact that He could not be tempted, the fact that He never did sin, the fact that there was no sin in Him proved the validity for who who He was. And in that validity of being Christ, 
the anointed one, the son of God, Emmanuel, the divine in flesh, the fact that he was who he said he was means that the salvation that he procured in his death is effectual. See, if Christ died as just another sinner, then our salvation is not nothing. We're still in our sins. We're still without hope. But because Jesus is who He said He was, and it was proven by the temptation that there was no sin in this man, it shows that He and His sacrifice was accepted by God. Well, what about Him being our sympathetic Savior? Well, He's our sympathetic Savior because He was tempted in all points. He knows in all points that we can be tempted as men. Mankind. He knows those temptations. And as having seen and experienced those temptations, the Bible says that we can boldly come to His throne of grace and obtain mercy. Because He knows the temptations. He also knows that we have sin that entices us through those temptations. And how that we are incapable of rejecting those temptations. That our flesh is incapable of keeping the law of God. And He knows what it means to keep the law of God. Therefore, He knows how to be our mediator. It isn't just, oh, I feel how bad you feel because you did that. That's not the purpose of why Christ did that. The purpose that Christ can sympathize with us is He knows the temptations that come of man and the sin that is in us that we cannot keep from sinning apart from God's restraining grace. Therefore, as the mediator between God and man, Christ can mediate between us knowing the temptation, knowing the inability, knowing His perfection. Therefore, He comes with the gospel as the comforter and gives us grace in knowing and believing upon Him that even though we have sinned, we have an advocate with the Father. Even though we've been enticed and have been tempted and drawn away by our lust, we are not under the condemnation of sin. He becomes our suffering, sympathetic priest in the fact that He brings us the comfort of the Gospel that therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because He who suffered for us give us His righteousness. And God no longer looks on us in those sins. Christ's temptation wasn't meaningless, brother. Look at chapter 7 and verse 25. It says, Wherefore He is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by Him, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession. For such a high priest became us, who is holy, who is harmless, undefiled. And here it is. Separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Listen, while He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, He is separate from sinners. He is not like us in the fact that He has no sin in Him. He is separate 
from sinners. Don't bring God down to your level. Jesus Christ, and I've heard this said before, and, and I used to say this, and it just grieves my heart that I used to say this. It was blasphemy. I still hear people that I know and I love say this, and it's blasphemy against Almighty God. But to say that Jesus is what Adam was supposed to be is blasphemy. They say Jesus was just like Adam. Adam was just like Jesus before he sinned. That is not true. You can't find one shred of evidence of that in Scripture. Nowhere. I I put out $500 for anybody that can show me that Adam, before he sinned, was like Jesus was. Show me that in Scripture, and I will give you $500 for enlightening me and correcting me in something that is of utmost importance. The Bible clearly says that Jesus was the second Adam, not the first Adam made over again. The Bible clearly says that the second Adam was not of this earth, but from heaven. The Bible says the second Adam was not natural, but spiritual. The second Adam is holy and harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners. Adam was a sinner. Adam was made natural. He was made with the, if you want to say propensity, if you want to say had the bent to sin, say what, however you want to say it, that eases your consciousness, but the fact remains that God made Adam a natural man without the ability to obey, predestinated Adam's fall, predestinated Adam's sin, predestinated that all of the man uh, or all of the people through Adam would fall in sin and death through his one transgression. Listen, God created a man for that purpose. That's why he said he was very good because he was created for the purpose of bringing sin and death into the world so that through sin and death he would send his son to redeem his people who he chose, not in Adam, but in Christ, and redeem them from that to the glory of his grace. Why is it important that Christ not be able to sin? Because all of this would not happen. <clears throat> Quickly, let's look at a few more verses here. Isaiah saw it. Isaiah saw this holiness. Look at Isaiah chapter 6. Familiar passage. Wonderful passage of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 6. Look at verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings, and twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved, and at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. 
Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah saw Christ on the throne. We learn that in John. John tells us that the man that Isaiah saw on the throne was Jesus Christ. And what did they, what was the, all of heavens proclaiming? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Who's the Lord of hosts? Jesus Christ. They weren't proclaiming the Father is holy, the Son is holy, the Holy Spirit is holy. No, holy, 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 the tri, uh, tri, uh, 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 chanting, the, the, the three chantings of holy was given to the man Jesus Christ who was on the throne. He, is holy. Why? Because He is the image of that triune God. He is the embodiment of the triune God. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells within that man bodily. And He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who all of heaven and all of earth will give praise and glory to. Isaiah knew that this man was holy. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 14 It says, but John forbade him saying, this is the baptism of Jesus here, but John forbade him saying, I have need to be baptized of thee and comest thou to me. And Jesus answered and said unto him, suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. See, even the very small act of, well, John, I know that I, Jesus didn't need to be baptized, did he? Yeah, he did. <laughs> he did need to be baptized. Why? Because the righteousness of God declared such. Jesus said for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus had to obey in every aspect, right? And so he came and he was baptized. And so even the very smallest thing of being baptized, Jesus came and obeyed. Look, if you would, at Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5 and verse 8. Isaiah recognized it. Matthew recognized it. Luke here recognizes it. Look, verse 8 says, When Simon Peter, excuse me, uh, Peter saw it. <coughs> When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter recognized Christ in His holiness and knew that He was a sinner before God because of the holiness of Christ Jesus. Look in John chapter 18 and in verse 38. This is where Jesus was about to go to be crucified and He was on trial before Pilate. Verse 37, Pilate therefore said unto Him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world. What did Jesus say? What was the reason that He came into the world? For this cause. You can say all that you want. You, if you even recognize Me as a king, 
it's still going to take place. I'm still going to be sent to that cross. You're going to send me to that cross. Why? Because you don't have any power in this earth. My power, my father has power over everybody. My father is the one who gives power and gives authority. And you can't do anything without him giving you the okay to do it. But it, even if you think that I'm the king, I'm still going to that cross. Because this is the reason that I came. Now, again, that goes back to the whole type and foreshadow. Jesus Christ was sent into this world. Why? As a sacrifice for sin. And that sacrifice had to be without spot, without blemish. But look what he says there. He says, For this cause came I into the world, and that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate said unto him, What is truth? When he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and said unto them, I find in him no fault. So see, even Pilate saw that this man had not done anything uh, worthy of death. Look at Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3 and verse 14. back up to verse 13 said the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob the God of our fathers hath glorified his son Jesus whom ye delivered up and mm-hmm. denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go but ye denied the holy one and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you so here we see Peter again uh, who had recognized Christ's holiness earlier that we just read now is declaring that holiness to all the Jews, saying, listen, Christ came out here and even Pilate recognized this man hadn't done anything. And yet you wanted a murderer instead of the holy and just one. So Peter declared him to be holy and just before all of Israel. Lastly, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> Brethren, I'm, I'm sure there's many other places in Scripture that I've probably forgotten. These are the ones that come to my mind this morning. I'm frantically write down a few verses to remember because I can't remember a lot of these verses unless I write them down. 1 Peter chapter 2. And look with me, if you would, verse 21. It says, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving this example that we should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Jesus, who knew no Sin. Could Jesus have sinned? No. He couldn't have sinned. He couldn't have sinned because of nature. He couldn't have sinned because of decree. He couldn't have sinned because of the predestinated work of God. He couldn't have sinned because of the office that He took up as our mediator, as our substitute. The very fact that He took on 
our flesh as our substitute meant that Jesus could not have sinned. Otherwise, He would not have been our substitute. Brethren, I'm here to say that Jesus Christ not only kept from sinning, but could not sin. He was impeccable. And because of that impeccability, we have salvation. What a glorious truth. Glorious doctrine. <coughs> Don't let the theologians of the day uh, try to misguide you or sympathy from men's hearts, corrupt hearts, by the way. Try to sway your thoughts that Christ could have done this, otherwise we'd never have a sympathizing Savior. Rather, praise the Lord we didn't have a, a Savior that could have sinned. We've got one who is unchangeable, the same yesterday, today, forever. He is just as much unable to sin today as he was when he came. Therefore, our salvation is secure in him. Right? All right. Anybody got any questions, comments? Dear Jesus, we thank you for your spotless sacrifice. Your spotless, flawless, sinless person. You who are God, fully God, all of God, the direct image of God, the representation of God, the manifestation of God, all God is in the flesh. Therefore, we have confidence in the salvation that you have secured because you changed not being God. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever, being the anointed one of Christ of God, the Christ. We know, Father, that the promises of God are yea and amen in you, therefore. Because those promises hinge upon you, they cannot change. Because God cannot lie. Therefore, you cannot sin. You will never sin. So, Father, we're so grateful today for this salvation, for the glorious gospel and testimony before us today. Now be with your people if you would. If it be your will, Lord, would you keep us in the faith Till we meet again, may Christ be honored. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.